This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, you're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Julia Karkatzel. Just a warning, this episode deals with sexual assault and violence. If you or someone you know is impacted, call 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732 or visit 1-800-RESPECT.org.au. Brittany Higgins was just 24 years of age when she was left unconscious and undressed on a couch in the office of her then-boss, Defence Minister Linda Reynolds, where she had been allegedly sexually assaulted. Two years after the incident took place, the Liberal staffer went public with her story. Yesterday, she met with the Australian Federal Police to make a formal complaint. Many aren't surprised by the incident, after years of what many call a toxic and misogynistic environment in Parliament. A sexist culture that continues to prevail in the media and its commentators. Joining me on the show to discuss is Amber Schultz, investigative reporter at Crikey. Amber, thanks for your time. Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. And Amanda Kopp, political reporter for National Radio News in Canberra. Amanda, welcome to the show. Hello, great to be here. Okay, so since Miss Higgins came forward with her story of sexual assault, the Prime Minister has announced numerous inquiries as part of a sweeping review of Parliament House. And the Australian Federal Police, after receiving a formal complaint from Miss Higgins, will now apply for renewed access to CCTV footage of that evening in 2019. Um, Amanda, I'll start with you. As an insider of the press gallery, uh, did Miss Higgins' claims shock you at all? I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, Obviously, any allegations of a rape uh, happening inside a workplace is shocking, to say the least. Um, Probably horrifying is is a better word. Um, But I think on the other hand, it it was a bit of a mixed emotion sort of day because, you know, on the one hand, yes, it was shocking. Yes, it was horrifying. But then on the other hand, it was kind of not that surprising, which sounds awful to say. Um, But it's just one of those things that, you know, women terribly get harassed and assaulted at work. Um, And so that's, you know, often just a reality for many women in workplaces, not just in Parliament House, but, but around the country. And so in many ways, it wasn't surprising 
uh, which, yeah, like I said, sounds terrible to say, but, um, but, but yeah, that's, that's how it was. And Amber, what were your first impressions when you heard the news? Look, I mean, it's a little bit the same. I think we've known for a while that Canberra and especially politicians or parliament um, presents this sort of hotbed where there's heavy drinking and a lot of liaising between people. And it just feels like Canberra is, or parliament is behind the times when it comes to addressing policies around sexual harassment. It just almost seems like they're a little bit above it all. Um, what shocked me, though, wasn't necessarily the allegations. It was the ignorance that the government feigned. I mean, you have a woman who is young, she's new to a job, you know, they have a night out and she's found in the office semi-conscious and half naked. And their first response is it's a security breach. It's not, it's not anything more, which is just, I mean, completely moronic. You know, in following the Me Too movement in today's kind of day and age, you should be aware that if someone is found in a state like that, you need to investigate a little bit more. Yeah, it just comes across as incredibly callous, I think, mm. you know, that it's just so self-centred. It's that they're worried about the political implications or, like you said, a security breach rather than this poor woman who has had her life totally changed. Mm. Mm-hmm. So Lenore Taylor, editor of Guardian Australia, said that when she worked at the press gallery, she would hand out lists of MPs to new female reporters uh, and told the new reporters not to visit those offices alone. Amanda, did you receive anything like this, even an informal word of warning? (laughs) Well, I mean, look, thankfully, I can say that I didn't receive a list like that, which, you know, at least implies that uh, potentially things have changed. Uh, But I think that the other side of that is that, you know, yes, I didn't get a list warning me against particular MPs or senators or or staff members, but I think it just means that things are a little bit more underground, you know, like I hear stories fairly frequently of young female journalists uh, who, you know, have been made to feel quite uncomfortable around particular members of staff or, or indeed politicians themselves, you know, when they're out at these sort of uh, kind of boozy uh, events that, that happen during sitting weeks when everyone's um, in the building. Okay, and um, Heather Hewitt from the ABC tweeted yesterday that in 1980, when she was a young journalist in the press gallery, uh, she said that young female broadcasters were referred to as microphone stands with tits. Mm. Uh, Yeah, so this not just paints a picture of a culture of deep misogyny, but also one of silence. And there seems to be too much anonymity for perpetrators in all of this. Um, Is it finally time that we hear all of these stories, um, not just the stories, but also names of people? Yeah, I guess um, I think that there's this this sort of interesting unsaid kind of rule in Parliament House where particularly when it comes to staff of politicians, they are very rarely named. So, you know, it's always a spokesperson or someone in the office of, you know, Minister X or whatever, um, so I think, number one, it would be interesting to see whether there were any kind of repercussions if, if people did start being named, not just, you know, in harassment or, or assault cases, but, you know, when it's just staff members behaving badly. Um, so, yes, I think I think definitely naming would kind of, you know, bring about sort of potentially a, a, a culture of 
change because you know people would be more scared of of having their reputations shot but i think that what ends up happening and i think that potentially some of the hesitancy from the media is that if you don't have a victim of an assault making a claim themselves you start straying into defamation territory and maybe that's an indictment on our defamation laws at the moment uh but yeah if you don't have someone who's willing to go on the record for you um it can really get into tricky territory legally for for the media i think it's also tough because we have to be really careful in the way that we write these stories to make sure that the survivors of the victims um have full autonomy this is the whole thing with sexual harassment sexual assault is someone has their autonomy taken away from them and i think you know there was a blogger that named um the the alleged rapist, Brittany Higgins, alleged rapist, without consulting her, without chatting to her and seeing how that might impact her. So I think we have to be careful if we're naming and shaming that we have the full consent of those involved. Absolutely. Just on another point as well, which I've kind of been thinking about lately, is I think that, you know, there's been a lot of fingers being pointed at, you know, Michaelia Cash and Linda Reynolds, which were Mm -hmm. Brittany Higgins' former bosses, uh, about, you know, why they didn't, you know, go to police or why kind of particular um, things weren't followed. But I, and their response has really been that, you know, Brittany didn't want to go to police or, you know, she previously did and then, and then withdrew her complaint or paused her complaint. Um, But, I think that people kind of trotting out saying, you know, oh, it was about agency for Brittany and she didn't want to come forward and that sort of thing. I think in some ways it, it kind of ignores the unsaid pressures that come with that. Brittany herself has said that she felt like her job would be in jeopardy if she pursued that police complaint. Uh, and that's not necessarily uh, because, you know, her bosses told her that, but it's just the kind of culture that, that permeates in that building sometimes. I also wonder if there's a little bit, I mean, obviously Linda Reynolds and Michaela Cash should have done more, but I wonder if there's a little bit more finger pointing over the fact that they're women and women are always expected to stand up more to sexual harassment when they see it, which is putting an unfair onus on women. I really think that there are more men that should have acted, but we're focusing more on the females because it just seems that this, you know, it just emphasizes this ridiculous rhetoric that this is a woman's issue. Yeah. And I mean, look, that kind of goes into, I remember chatting to people at the beginning of this whole um, incident where someone was asking, you know, oh, do you think that Linda Reynolds is going to have to resign over this scandal? And uh, one of my bosses said, oh, well, you know, there's always the possibility because she's a woman involved in a scandal and it's always the women who have to resign rather than the men. And Mm. I guess, you know, not related to, to, um, scandals of assault and such but uh you know the last minister to resign in the morrison government was uh bridget mckenzie back when we had sports rorts whereas you know we've had various rorts and and terrible things going on in in the ministership and you know no one else has has resigned Mm. Um, Just on that point, Amber, you wrote um, an opinion piece and you said that lots of male commentators kind of raise this point, right? So Herald Sun's um, 
Andrew Bolt said that women should put faith in the justice system. Um, and we know, of course, as we we're talking about, um, you know, Miss Higgins initially contact the, contacted the AFP in 2019, but she chose not to proceed um, because she felt like she had to choose between the investigation and her career. So why is it so simplistic to assume women can just put their faith in the justice system? Firstly, I think it's incredibly hypocritical of Andrew Bolt to say put faith in the justice system when he himself was really against the justice system when it came to George Pell, firstly. Um, secondly, we know that, you know, it's a, a 13% of women actually go to the police to make a complaint because the onus is on them to prove it, which, you know, of course makes sense. But often they'll go to the police and they're bullied or they're intimidated or the police or, or advisors will really say to them, look, doing this could actually be worse for you. You're going to have to relive it. You're going to have to, you know, have have lawyers scrutinise every aspect of your behaviour and every aspect of your personality. Like it's a really huge traumatic thing to go through. And for a lot of survivors and victims, it's simply not worth adding that extra trauma. You know, the amount of people, it's less than one third of complaints that are made with police actually result in legal action. It's a tiny, tiny fraction because, uh, you know, the, the burden of proof is huge and it's so easy for a lot of law officials to say, well, you know, you were drinking, we, we don't have a camera, we don't know what happened. So I, I really think it's an incredibly untactful, it's an incredibly ignorant thing to say, put faith in the justice system when Andrew Bolt just could have done a very brief Google to learn about why that isn't the case. Uh, I'd just like to add, um, I just finished reading a really fascinating book on that very subject uh, by Louise Milligan, uh, an investigative journalist, I think with the ABC at the moment. It's called Witness. And it's basically about how the justice system fails victims and survivors of sexual abuse. Uh, and a lot of the people that she interviews for that book who are victims and survivors of sexual abuse essentially say that, you know, once they went through uh, the legal system for months, if not years, they get to the end of it. And, you know, whether the person is found guilty or not guilty, a lot of them actually come out of it and say, you know, I actually wish that I had never pursued it through the justice system, which is just such an indictment on how our systems make victims and survivors feel. And um, since Miss Higgins went public with her story, three other women have come forward with allegations about the same man who allegedly raped uh, her, and multiple Liberal staffers put forward separate claims of sexual assaults um, within the parliament in 2019. Why do you think it takes an alleged rape for the institutional problem to be treated with seriousness? I've actually been thinking a lot about this lately. I mean, you know, for obvious reasons, it's been dominating the news cycle for the last two weeks. But I think part of the problem, and feel free to, to disagree, I, I think that part of the problem is actually the language that we use around sexual assault. I think that the, the words sexual assault, I think actually end up being quite sanitized to what has happened. So one of those women who came forward in 2019, a former liberal staffer who was also assaulted by one of her colleagues, you know, you say sexual assault and you kind of think, okay, well, what does that actually mean? Is it that she was, you know, touched inappropriately on the bum or, you know, that someone uh, pushed her or, or, or someone tried to kiss her or, or something like that? Or is it something more serious, you know, like something like 
rape or or someone you know pulling her clothes off or something like that and and her particular case was a, a colleague essentially and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to kind of go into details so feel free to uh, cut this out if you need but her sexual assault was her colleague pushing her down onto a bed trying to remove her clothes her repeatedly saying to him to stop and the more she got agitated and told, told him to stop the more violent and pushy he became to the point where he actually held her down by her throat on a bed while he was masturbating on her. Uh, And I think that using the word sexual assault, it really just sanitizes the horrendous circumstances that some women find themselves in. And so I think that the reason that this has suddenly blown up is because we can actually put a different label on what has happened to this woman, which is that she was raped uh, rather than saying, you know, that she was sexually assaulted and not really knowing the details of that. I mean, Amber, you speak about it in your opinion piece about how some language in the media is pretty concerning. Um, Some likened the alleged rape to um, a sex scandal, which is, yeah, equally as shocking. Um, What are your thoughts? That's exactly it. So I think firstly, we have to be careful because any form of sexual violence is sexual violence. And it is dangerous that, you know, it should it should be about the impact that it has on the person. So it is dangerous for to say, you know, well, it wasn't violent or, um, you know, it wasn't penetrative. So therefore, it's not as serious. I think it's really dangerous. But I do agree that I think what pushed it over the line was the fact Brittany Higgins gave face to the name and she said, what it was, which was allegedly rape, um, which obviously sounds, it does sound more serious than assault, but we do have to be a little bit careful that we're not, um, you know, trying to trying to say that the others aren't serious because of that. And, and just on the sex scandal thing, so this was Dennis Shanahan in The Australian who said um, it was a sex scandal and it took a toll on Brittany Higgins. Just all of that language, there is so much wrong with it. You know, there... A sex scandal is something cheeky or it's something a bit naughty or it's a a consensual affair. It is not what this was, which is allegedly rape. Um, And I think even his language, which is taking a toll on her, is just really dismissive and really downplays what happens and the effects that this, you know, could have or is having on Brittany, which is huge. You know, we know that one in five victims have injuries. We know that, you know, more than half have um, anxiety and fear in the year after assault. It's a its a serious thing. And downplaying it, which is what he did, is really, really problematic. The other thing on language as well is, you know, we saw it come, you know, straight from the top, really, is that the day after these allegations were made from Brittany Higgins, we had the Prime Minister come out and, you know, kind of be very sympathetic and say that it was really horrible. Um, but then went into this kind of spiel about how he had spoken to his wife, Jenny, uh, which, you know, obviously as a married couple, that's, you know, a pretty normal thing to do. And that she had told him that his response had to be based on what he would want if he imagined one of his own daughters was in that situation and how he would want the system to act around that if it was one of them. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are a lot of women who really just, stood up and said, hang on a minute, you know, why do you have to imagine someone as your daughter or or your wife or some kind of relation to you before you can feel 
empathy for them. And I'm sure that the prime minister, you know, was empathetic towards Brittany regardless of that. But I think it really just speaks to a wider problem that we've had where seemingly a lot of men don't have empathy for women who go through these sorts of things unless they can kind of relate it to, you know, someone in their own lives. Yeah, women's business, um, very problematic. Um, back to the culture in Parliament, the, the press gallery and our pollies are not just in the same building. They play cricket together, they also hold an annual game of footy, and then they all hang out at the same drinking holes. Do you think that journalists and politicians are too cosy? Yes and no. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, it kind of just comes with the territory. I think that there's this kind of duality where you want to be making contacts in the parliament and that often means going out for drinks after work going to social events and and I can't overstate how many social events there are in that building like it's it honestly it starts from all those sporting events start from you know 6 7 a.m before parliament sits and then afterwards it's uh you know lobbying events in parliament house or you know it afterwards dinners drinks out with people you know the the kind of notorious public bar and in, in Monica down the road um, so I think that there's this kind of pressure that particularly as a young journalist in the press gallery is that, you know, you're trying to make as many contacts as possible and get your name noticed and, you know, make all these connections. And often a good and effective way to do that is to go to these events because, you know, you can meet MPs and senators who you've never talked to before. You can talk to their staff. You can, you know, get along with them in a, in a social sense so that it doesn't feel as strange, you know, later on when you're kind of calling them up or texting them or asking them for an interview or, or getting their opinion on something. So I think it's a, a bit of a hard line to walk because, you know, it does stray into that sort of, you know, is it professional or are you friends? And I think that that's where it gets a bit messy. Yeah, I mean, fingers are being pointed at our political class over all of this, but do you think we should be getting more angry at our journalists, seeing as how um, Parliament House has the highest concentration of journalists in the country and yet this culture has kind of continued on, basically untouched, unreported on until now? Uh, yes, I think that the press gallery is in some capacity to blame for this culture of silence. I think for, I, I haven't been in the press gallery for a super long time um, myself, but there has been a culture for a long time of the kind of, you know, what stays, what happens in parliament stays in parliament kind of ideas where, you know, people would kind of go to these events, which are you know, like no phone events or anything like that. So, you know, there aren't kind of, um, things that get leaked out. But um, so, yeah, definitely I think that the press gallery has some questions to answer in that capacity. However, I would say the issue then becomes that in Parliament, everything is about connections and favours for people and, um, you know, what makes politicians look good or look bad. And so if you have a journalist who publishes a story that, doesn't paint a minister or an MP or a senator in a good light, quite often that MP or senator will never talk to that journalist again or, you know, will kind of put them in the icebox for a couple of weeks until they kind of, you know, learn their lesson that they shouldn't be publishing these negative articles. Um, and so I think that the problem is, is that, you know, unless you're willing to sacrifice those 
contacts and those connections who, you know, might be able to provide you with, with other stories uh, that unless you're willing to sacrifice that a lot of the time, people just don't think publishing something that, you know, is a, is a rumor or something like that uh, as, as worth it. Well, that's pretty shocking to hear, um, but I guess that's the reality there. Um, I guess a, a last question uh, for this topic. Amber, you referenced an important report in your opinion piece about media reporting on violence against women in Australia and how it usually focuses on the individual uh, circumstances of violence, the lead up, the violence itself, uh, the relationship, and then articles also tended to victim blame and in some cases even offer excuses for the perpetrator. How would you both, you've both touched on this uh, throughout, but how would you both like to see the Australian media cover an issue like this? I think most journalists just need a little bit more encouragement to go on our watch or Anne-Rose and do a little bit of research and a little bit of training. I think it's really tempting for news organisations to get into the details because with violent crime, that's what a lot of tabloids do. They get into the details, but in doing so can offer excuses for the perpetrator. And I think we saw this with um, Hannah Clark. We saw a lot of focusing on the fact that he was this, you know, big sports player um, and, and this kind of language that men seem to snap or, you know, they, it's a one-off, it's a one-off violent act and it's not the whole rhetoric behind it, the build-up to it and the fact that this isn't just a one-off man, you know, a man getting angry. This is a much broader picture of what's happening in our society. So I'd really like, and I think we have seen a change. I think media reporting has really improved over the last five years when it comes to discussing violence against women. There's still a long way to go, but I think we really need to focus more on the woman, more on, or more on the survivors and more on having absolute consent about what is being written about them and making sure that, you know, they, they know how they're going to be portrayed and that they know what they're getting themselves into. Um, but I would say, you know, around Brittany Higgins, a lot of the media reporting has been very good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think number one is just having empathy, you know, um, these uh, survivors or, or victims of, of sexual assault and abuse uh, people who often, um, and again, you know, before it goes through a court case is allegedly, um, but, you know, they've gone through a horrendous experience. And so I think it's just about having empathy for those people in in that reporting. Um, but I think at least from the political perspective, I think that we will really see success in this issue when a woman or, or, or a man uh, comes forward in our parliament who has been assaulted um, and she keeps her job uh, because all of these women who have come forward previously have left parliament or left politics entirely. So I really think that that, that will be the, the measure of success when someone can come forward, be heard and retain their job. Mm-hmm. Very good point. Um, Okay, so let's move on to Facebook. In other news, tech giant Facebook has lifted its ban on news after it blocked Australian users from sharing or viewing news content. That's after the government agreed to amend legislation for a proposed news media bargaining code. And commercial deals with news businesses are underway. Seven West Media has already struck a deal with Facebook. Um, Do you both think that this is a win for Australian media or will this be another case of big players kind of signing deals and smaller independent media companies missing out? 
I think absolutely the latter. You know, I think this was a, a big criticism of a lot of this news bargaining code is that what probably should have happened is the, the Facebook and Google have to pay a tax or an incentive or have something written in the legislation that makes sure that the money actually goes to supporting journalism initiatives and supporting small companies. You know, we do have a massive conglomerate of media in Australia and we've been aware for it, of it for a long time. Um, and then with this, we know that, you know, up to 90% of the cash is going to go to News Corp, Seven West Media and Nine and very little to the little guys like, like Crikey, really. Um, and it's just, you know, it's just not really creating a solution. It's another problem. Uh, as someone who is in the community radio space, I think that there's a lot of fear that, you know, this legislation is being seen as a solution to the media's woes in terms of where we get our financing from. Uh, but there's this fear that, you know, it will go to the big players, you know, your, your Nines and News Corp and ABC um, and leave the kind of smaller publishers uh, like Community Radio, like Crikey, uh, behind. Um, and, you know, where are we supposed to get um, our money from? And I guess that the, the other thing is, is that, you know, you're kind of talking to these enormous companies, you know, Google and Facebook are, I think something like the, the, the revenue of Google, I think, is more than the Australian government gets in taxes every year. Um, so huge companies and, you know, are they going to be talking to the local community radio station about about how they can do a deal with them? Probably not. Okay, and what do you think that the ban taught us about the power of big tech? Should we really be relying so heavily on social media to share news content? I would really hope that this Facebook ban that I might add was introduced poorly and really hurriedly and we, see, we saw a lot of... Um, you know, emergency service information, health information and First Nations groups shut down because of it. Um, and I would really hope that news organisations would realign their priorities. We know that people are moving away from Facebook and there's very few young people on Facebook. Um, and I'd like to think that, you know, we're not so reliant on it. And Facebook also has this huge issue of moderating its content, you know, um, extremist views and fake news is has been pretty rampant on the platform. And I don't think it's a it's a place people should really go to as their first port of call to, to get informed. Yeah, I just think that this is a classic case of not putting all of your eggs in one basket. And I think mm -hmm. that, unfortunately, a lot of media organisations kind of saw social media like Facebook and like Twitter as the kind of potential saviours of, you know, accessing audiences like they had previously. And I just don't think that that is the case. And I think that, yeah, what this has really shown is that, yeah, we just can't rely on those platforms either, number one, because the companies can make these sort of rash decisions and totally disrupt the business models of many media organizations out there. But also because consumers are fickle. And, you know, like, like you said, the younger generation is hardly using Facebook at all. People kind of refer, <laughs> refer to Facebook these days as, you know, for their parents or, or for old people. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, yeah, we, de we definitely can't have all of our eggs in one basket. Okay, and just last question. Um, the ban was heavily criticised by governments across the globe uh, and news publishers are lobbying the European Union for payment. Um, perhaps the news bargaining code was worth it after all. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I think as much as there's kind of criticism about the potential fallout with Facebook and, you know, whether small publishers are going to be included or anything, um, I, I think fundamentally this legislation is a good thing. Essentially, the government has seen that at the moment the media does not have a sustainable business model and, you know, the internet and social media and advertisements being on the internet rather than in newspapers and on TV has been around for, you know, 40, 30 years now. Um, and we've just seen, you know, newsrooms get smaller and smaller and more journalists lose their job and it be the, the media in general being spread thinner and thinner and I'm so glad that the government has finally stepped in and said, okay, if we want to have a functioning democracy, which involves a well-resourced media to point out where things are going wrong and to give voices to people in the community, then we have to figure out a different funding model. And hopefully, hopefully this is it. Yeah, I would agree. As critical as I am about the code, it is you know, it was a huge thing for the government to do and a really positive thing for the government to stand up to, to these guys. And it really did portray Facebook and Google as bullies. Um, and I think it's, it's quite impressive that we were the first country to really make those, take those steps. Well, that's it from us on The Fourth Estate. A big thanks to my guests, Amber Schultz, investigative reporter at Crikey, and Amanda Kopp, political reporter for National Radio News in Canberra. This episode deals with sexual assault and violence. If you or someone you know is impacted, call 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or visit 1800respect.org.au. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast so you'll never miss an episode. And if you're already a subscriber, please leave us a review on your podcast app or on Facebook. It helps us know what you like and it helps other people find the show. You can stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is 4 Estate AU. My name's Julia Karkatzel. You can catch us next week.